Tune your ear to wisdom. Cry aloud for understanding. If you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Welcome to Project Philippians, a deep dive into one of the richest treasure mines in Scripture. I'm delighted to have you join me today for another excavation into an amazing 2,000-year-old book. Hey guys, thank you for coming back. Wow, I, it's one of those days where I am just so excited to share uh, the things that are in the text today. So I just want to dive right in with a word of prayer. Lord God Almighty, we are so grateful you were here with us. You were listening to us as we grope through your word, looking and searching for the gold and gems that are there. And I know that we're going to find it because your spirit is with us. And so, Lord God, I just pray that you would guard and guide my words today, that I might um, speak truth and life to uh, my friends. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. All right. So we, again, of course, <laughs> are in Philippians chapter 1, and uh, we've been talking in the last few episodes about the excitement and enthusiasm that Paul has. He used the words like thanksgiving, I thank God, and with joy I pray. And he's talking about the enthusiastic, joyful attitude that he has when he thinks of the Philippians. And the question I have is why? Why was he so excited about his friendship with them? I mean, keep in mind, where is he writing this letter? He is not sitting in some comfortable resort area. He is in prison. He talks a few verses later about the chains and the, and the palace guard that guards him. He is in a prison, and yet he's filled with joy. What is up with that? Where does that joy come from? Well, the whole book is going to kind of explain a, a lot of the reasons uh, for his joy, but we're going to get to the very first one today, and it's why I'm excited to, to share it with you. And it's going to be in verse 5. Now, last week we read verse 4, and those of you who are looking closely noticed that it wasn't a full sentence. We ended in the middle of a sentence, and now he's going to explain the reason for his joy. So let me back up to verse 3, and we'll read it together. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all of my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That is what brings him joy. Their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Partnership. Some of your translations might have participation. This word is going to form a theme in this book that's going to come up. It's bubbling up um, in multiple places. In fact, this is a word uh, that, that Paul uses a lot. It, it appears some 20 or 30 times in Scripture. Most of those times are in the writings of Paul. He loves this word. There's something about this word that gets him really excited. So what is it? Let's dig into this word and try to peel back the layers here. Now, some of you may know what the underlying Greek word for this word participation or partnership is. It's the word in Greek, it's koinonia. Koinonia. Or there's uh, also the verb form is koinoneo. And this is a word that you, I wouldn't be surprised if you've heard it before because it's uh, commonly preached about. It's a common theme in a lot of churches, although I'm not sure if I've experienced it in a lot of churches. The word koinonia comes from the Greek word koinon, and the word koinon means common or shared. 
So by extension, we understand that koinonia means the connection we can have with others because of what we share in common. That's the kind of the root idea. It's, like I said, sometimes uh, translated partnership or participation, but most often is another word that I'm sure you've heard, fellowship. Fellowship. That's how koinonia is most often translated. But that's not actually very helpful because what is fellowship? That's such a churchy word that we hardly ever use outside a church. For far too many people, fellowship is just what they do down in the church's fellowship hall when they sit together and have a potluck and chat about the weather. But let me tell you, fellowship, true fellowship, is got to be something far more than that because that's not something that Paul would get excited about, is it? He must have had something else in mind. So what is koinonia from a scriptural perspective? What does that word really mean? If you want to understand a word in the Bible, one of the best ways to do it is what I call a word study. It's where you take a word and you look up all the occurrences of that word using a concordance or a Bible software of some sort. You look up every place where that word appears in Scripture and you see how that word plays itself out. So I did that this week and I want to bring you on this word study. And it's going to be a a high-speed word study. We're going to be flying through, so buckle up. Um, I hope you have your Bibles with me. I'm going to be listing off these verses. They're also going to be in in the study notes. So let me say it again. Koinonia is the connection we can have with others because of what we share in common. So what exactly do we share in common with others? Well, scripturally, the first thing that we can point to is our shared humanity. Hebrews 2.14 reminds us that we as people share, koinonia, flesh and blood. And it goes on to say that Jesus came to share that too so that he could save us from the power of death. But the point is that fellowship can just be we, we share common bodies. But of course, that's kind of a surface level fellowship. It's a sharing of humanity. But we as Christians can begin to go to a next level, to the level of sharing faith, koinonia of faith. So in Philemon 1.6 and Titus 1.4, Paul talks about this in Philemon. He says, I pray that the sharing, the koinonia of your faith would be enlarged through an understanding of all that is ours in Christ. And I'm sure you've experienced a little of that. You can walk into virtually any church in the world and you can you sense that you have a, a community because you all believe the same things. You all share faith. But again, it's not supposed to stop just there. Fellowship needs to go to the next level. And I call it the fellowship of character. Peter talks about this in 2 Peter 1.4 where he says that we share, we participate in the divine nature as we escape the worldly corruption of our lusts and desires. So we share in a common character, common nature, the nature of God. First John, uh, John talks about this in 1 John chapter 1 verse 3 through 6. He, he explains that we Share, we fellowship with the Father and with the Son in so much as we share in His character. He says, God is light and we fellowship with Him as long as we are walking in light. He says in verse 6, if we claim to have fellowship with Him but walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. He's saying, 
If you are not walking in the character of God, you're not sharing, by definition, you are not fellowshipping with God because you're not sharing his character. But it goes on to say that if we do walk in the light as he is in the light, then we fellowship not only with the Father and with the Son, but with each other. We have a common sharing of character, the character and, and, and nature of God himself, the divine nature. Now, that's a beautiful thing, but the Bible doesn't stop there. It keeps going even deeper. In fact, we learn about it at the very beginning of the history of the church, back in Acts chapter 2. This is back at the very uh, seedling church is just being formed. The Holy Spirit has come. The day of Pentecost is, uh, has broken out, and 3,000 people became Christians on one day. And what happened immediately after? They, it says in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miracles were done by the apostles. So, uh, you know, I think a lot of churches read this and they say, hey, look at that. They devoted themselves to teaching, fellowship, and uh, breaking of bread. That means we need to go to church and then have a potluck afterwards and we're good. We're gold. No, but there's something more here that, that a lot of people miss, and that is that Remember what I told you that the fellowship, the koinonia comes from this word konon, which appears in the very next verse that we sometimes skip over. It says, verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in konon, common. They had everything in common. They began to share. They sold their possessions and goods and they gave to everyone as he had need. And they continued to meet together in the temple courts day after day, every day. So these people, these brand new Christians were so excited about their faith that they were, they, they were sold out and they were bringing all of their possessions together. They, they knew that we are in this together and they wanted to do that in a tangible way. And so they shared everything. This was a sharing of their lives, a sharing of their possessions, a sharing of all that they had. And that's, this is where it starts to get real. There's one other level of koinonia that I want to mention, and that is the koinonia of suffering. Paul himself talks about this in, in Philippians, in chapter 3, verse 10, where he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. When we suffer together, we have a connection together that just deepens our relationship in a way that no, nothing else really can. And so you can see this, this broad brush of how fellowship, how koinonia is supposed to impact every corner of our lives. And this is what Paul is getting excited about. Now, I spent some time this week trying to think of a way to, to try to describe what this type of fellowship looks like without using churchy language. And the best example that I could come up with, and it's kind of a silly one, is that I, I am a, a little bit of a football fan. I, I follow the Seahawks. And a few times in the years past, I've taken my family to the Seahawks Stadium to watch a live football game. And if you've ever experienced anything like that, you know that it is, a, it is an experience like none other. Now, Seahawks are famous for being loud fans. Their stadium is the loudest, one of the loudest stadiums in the league. And when you get there, you are surrounded by people who are shouting and screaming and rooting and feverishly rooting for their team. 
And you, you can even walk it out into the food courts and the enthusiasm is even out there. You'll be walking down the food court and you'll hear some stranger yell out, see, and a whole nother crowd of people yelling out, hawks. And then they just start chanting together, Seahawks, Seahawks. And it's just a, a, a hilarious but really enjoyable community where you all know that you're sharing the same value, that you're rooting for the same team and you're excited about it. You're wearing the jerseys. And, you know, again, that's a silly illustration because that's just a game. But the, the tangible, enthusiastic togetherness of shared values is something that, you know, I, I don't really experience it very often, particularly in most churches I've been to. That, that there's that, that joy, that team spirit. In fact, I use that phrase very specifically because uh, Paul in Philippians 2.1 talks about the fellowship of the spirit, the team spirit. And um, I shared this illustration of the Seahawks earlier this week in a Bible study. And, and one of the fellows said, you know, I've been to the Seahawks stadium, but I was wearing the opponent's jersey. And I'll tell you, when you see other people who are rooting for the visiting team, that's when you really feel community. <laughs> and you can just imagine because, and I think that's even a better illustration because that's how the Christians felt in those early days. They were the minority. They were, uh, they were persecuted, but they were together and they shared something that was extremely valuable to them. And it was extremely valuable to Paul. And that's why he was so excited about so what does this have to do with the Philippians themselves? What is it that they shared in common with Paul? So let's get back to our text, Philippians chapter 1, verse 5. Philippians chapter 1, 5. I, am, I pray, every time I think of you, I pray with joy because of your fellowship in the gospel. Your participation, your partnership, your koinonia in the gospel. They have something that is supremely important to them that they share in common, and that is their love for the gospel. And how does this play out in the Philippians' lives? Well, he, Paul gives us a hint of that because he says, I am, I am joyful because of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, think about that. Uh, for those of you who've been following along in this podcast, you know that we started the whole series by looking in the book of Acts. And this verse right here is one of the main reasons why I wanted to do that, because I wanted to give you a picture of what it was like on the first days of the gospel's entrance into Philippi. Paul remembers those days. He's reminding them. So let's go back to Acts for just a moment and remind ourselves of what was going on in those first days that had to do with fellowship. So let me take you back to Acts chapter 16. And who was the very first person to be saved on the continent of Europe in the city of Philippi? Do you remember her name? It was Lydia, the businesswoman. And Paul met her out by the river and he preached the gospel to her and it said the Lord opened her heart and she was baptized. And what was the very next thing she did? She pleaded with Paul. She said, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, then come and stay at my house. And so she persuaded us. She compelled us. You remember that Paul was not the kind of person who wanted to take anything from the people that he was preaching to. He, he really tried to avoid that because he didn't want to give the impression that he was preaching for 
for financial gain of any kind. So he did not like to receive things from people, but she was so insistent that she persuaded him to come to her house. And and what happened later in her house? Well, we read later that it became the center of the Christian church in the city, that all the brothers were starting to gather at her house. She wanted to open up her home to the gospel message. She wanted it to to just be part of her life. You turn the page and we got the next convert in Philippi was the Philippian jailer who had this, you know, earth-shaking conversion, (laughs) quite literally. And then what happened? Paul said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. And he was saved. And what was the very next thing that he did? He invited them to his house. That says in verse 33, at that very hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. And immediately he and all his family were baptized and the jailer brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. These people were so overcome by the joy of their newfound salvation that they wanted to include everybody. They said, come, join us, join my family, come to my house, eat with me, become part of my family. This is, this. I want to be all in and I want you to be part of me. I want to be connected to you. This is what the Philippians were like from the first day. They were all in and Paul remembers those moments with such fondness. But he went on in verse in Philippians 1, 5, he says, from the first day until now. You see, it didn't just end there when he was visiting Philippi that first time. It kept on going. This type of, of fervent love for the Lord and fervent love for each other continued to, to grow and show itself in tangible ways. And we read about that in the end of the book of Philippians in chapter 4. If you'll recall, one of the main reasons Paul's writing this letter is it's a thank you letter for a gift that the Philippians had sent him. And he describes that gift in this language. In Philippians 4 verse 10, he says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it up till now. Verse 14, he says, and it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. He is reminding them that this most recent gift that they sent through the hands of Epaphroditus has a history. He's saying that I remember that you have been sharing with me all along. Well, do we do we know the historical context of what he's talking about? Well, as a matter of fact, we do. So let me walk you down this trail. And it is just a pretty stunning picture that we're going to see of the Philippians. We'll start in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 9, it says, When I was with you, he's talking to the Corinthians, he said, When I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. And I, so I was able to keep myself from being a burden to you. What's he referring to? Well, you have to turn back to the book of Acts to get the context on that. Acts chapter 18 he is, this is when Paul first went to Corinth. And when he was there, in verse 2, he says he met a, a Jew named Coquilla and Priscilla. And, and um, verse 3, because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. And every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade the Jews and Greeks. 
So think about this for a second. We think of Paul as some missionary, some full-time pastor roving around, you know, doing missions all the time, but that's not how he started. He started as what we call today an itinerant missionary, where he had a regular job. In his case, it was making tents, and he had a partner, Priscilla and Aquila, uh, who made tents too, and so side by side, they were just sewing leather together, and then on the weekends, he would go out and preach. In the Sabbath, he would go to the synagogue and preach. And that was just his normal way so that he would, he didn't have to be a burden on anyone. He just worked his way through the ministry. But then, verse 5, Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia. And when they did, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. What's going on? Macedonia, that's a key. Do you remember what the leading city in Macedonia was, according to Acts 16, verse 12, where it says, From there we travel to Philippi, a leading city in the district of Macedonia. So when he's talking about Macedonia in Acts and in Corinthians, we know that Philippi was one of the leading cities in that community. And based on what we just read in Corinthians and Acts 18, we've, we're putting it together that these Macedonians, these Philippian Macedonians, sent brothers to Corinth to help Paul. And when we put this together, what we're seeing is the picture that these Philippians are remembering Paul. Paul had left, they'd, he'd preached in Philippi, planted the church, and then gone on, and they had not forgotten him. And so they were continuing to pray for him, and they were continuing to con be concerned about him. And they heard that he was just preaching uh, on the weekends, and they said, you know what? We could do better. We could get the gospel farther. And so they sent enough money for him to be able to go full-time. This was the first time he went full-time ministry because the Philippians were the ones that sent the money. That And, and the word send or the word to per, contribute money is the word, guess what it is? It's the word fellowship. They fellowshiped the money to, to him so that he could serve God full-time. Isn't that amazing? And he, and, we're, and according to Philippians 4, it sounds like they were the only church that ever did that. They were the only, his only supporting church that were actually sending money. And you know, Paul just, he just can't get over how thankful and excited he is about this. In fact, listen to this description that he gave to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. He says, and now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Again, the Philippian churches and some others. He says, out of the most severe trial, the severe trial. You remember the trial that Paul went through. He was thrown in prison. Now that, that type of animosity against Christianity didn't end when Paul left town. Clearly, this verse shows us that they continued to experience that type of trial, that type of persecution. And out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. And then listen to this verse, 8-4. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. 
and they didn't do it as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. These Philippians, just like that first day when they begged Paul to come into their house and share a meal with them, they continued to plead with him, please let us have a part in this. Please let us belong to your team and be a part of and give to you and, and give beyond their ability because they were so excited. They got it. Paul was thrilled because he knew the Philippians get it. They understand the reality of the gospel and the implications of the gospel to the whole world. And so that, that, my friends, is why Paul thinks with joy and thanksgiving every time he prays for them, because he is so overwhelmed with the joy of sharing this type of fellowship with him. You know, my friend, it, it, this, this type of fellowship is rare. The, it is rare to find people who really get excited about the things that you get excited about. And I want to tell you, I want to encourage you, you need to look for that. You need to pray for that. You need to find brothers or sisters who know God like you know Him and who want to serve Him like you want to serve Him. And you will find a fellowship, a koinonia between you that will go deeper than any other friendships that you have because you're connected by a shared common love for the gospel and for the Lord, and you're going to get excited about that. And I'll tell you what, it is going to change your life. So that right now is the, my prayer for you, and let me pray it this way. Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, Spirit of fellowship, will you come right now? Will you bring into our lives others who share our love for you so that we can together experience this kind of fellowship that got Paul so jumping up and down excited in the middle of a prison sentence. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be that kind of people, that we would be the people that would be all in, that we would contribute all of our lives, all that we have for the sake of the gospel, that we would be that excited to get the gospel to the people who need to hear it. Lord God, thank you for the Philippians who did that with Paul. Thank you that Paul reminded us about it. And Lord, Holy Spirit, work these things into our hearts so that we could be transformed, so that we could be the people of Koinonia. In Jesus' name, amen. spend this time with me, but don't let it end here. May the words of God continue to resonate in your heart and transform your life until the day you meet our glorious King and Savior face to face.